0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 203. And the quote of the day is from Georgie O'Keefe, who said, Whether you succeed or not is irrelevant. There's no such thing. Making your unknown known is the most important thing listening to the drummers resource podcast home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers music industry professionals and thought leaders inspiration education and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond What's going on, everybody? Nick Ravini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for checking it out. If this is your first time listening, what's going on? Thanks so much for for being here. And you can check out over 200 other interviews at drummersresource.com. And while you're there, pick up a copy of my ebook, Stick Control Variations. It's 11 creative exercises to help you with your speed, your independence, your dexterity, your chops. And you can get it 100% free at drummersresource.com. Now the interview that I have today I don't need to introduce him his reputation precedes him but this is a really special interview for me not only because of who it is but also because Steve has influenced my playing since the beginning of time and if anyone said who's your favorite drummer Steve Gadd's name would be the first person that I would mention not that I think that there is the greatest drummer in the world and all of that sort of stuff so we're not going to get into that debate but for me there was about 10 years of me just diving into everything Steve got. So this is a very, very special interview for me and I'm happy to have done it and I'm happy to be sharing it with you now. So thanks so much for checking it out. Before we get into it, I want to let you know about the audio. It's not as good as I wanted it to be. This was done. It was a three-way call where Steve was on the phone and John Christopher, who I've had on the podcast, was on the phone as well. And it was a three-way cell phone kind of thing. And so... It didn't sound as good as I'd hoped. It doesn't sound horrible by any means, but, and I know that Justin did a great job cleaning it all up and trying to get it sounding as good as possible. Now, there's just two parts to this interview, so the first half is a little rougher than the second half. But I just wanted to clear that up. So if anybody was thinking that we're we're over here slacking on the audio or anything, uh, it was just sort of the nature of the beast. But then again, it's with Steve Gad, so I can't really uh, I can't really complain. So. I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Let's get into it with the one, the only, Steve Gadd. Steve, thank you so much for, for doing this and, and taking time out of your day to chat with me. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for uh, having
0: me. Absolutely, it is. Uh, I sh- I want to tell you this publicly that that you have influenced my playing uh, over the years, and I've I've always wanted to to chat with you, and to be able to do this is a a real a real honor and a pleasure. Um, I wanna I want to just start, and I don't like to dig too far into backstory and and where you came from and all those things because all of that stuff's available out there online, but they're. There is one thing that I want to talk about and growing up in Rochester and whether or not you feel like that developed your sound. Do you think that that living in that area uh, was there was there something that you can sort of pinpoint to to how that sound developed or do you think that it was uh, just a matter of of you evolving over the years?
1: I think that growing up in Rochester, you know, helped. Uh, I mean, I did. a i i i was around a lot of different kinds of music. You know, So I was playing in drum corps, so I loved the sound of 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 those kind of drums. And I was, uh, um, you know, sitting in with or going and listening to organ groups and sitting in with them, which was a, a whole other ball, game. Um. You know, and then when I when I uh, got into college, I was uh, uh, in you know playing in orchestra and a wind ensemble. So that, those are different kinds of uh, you know sounding instruments for that kind of music. Um, uh, and I, you know, I, and I, I love them all. So I'm sure that in some way. Uh, whatever you know, all of that was, his, you know, has influenced uh, who I've become musically.
0: The one thing that I that I've always noticed, and I don't think that that I'm the only person that's noticed notices, is that you have this strong rudimental background, and not that you know. I think that sometimes people can get too too deep into the rudimental side of things, and it actually comes out too much in the playing where it sterilizes a bit and, and sort of boxes them in as a player, which obviously I don't think there's anyone on the planet that thinks that you fall into that category. Uh, but, but was that, was that just a part of the time? Is that the way that you had to learn how to play? You had to come up because I know learning drums now and learning drums then is totally different. Um, so did you come up having to do the pad work you know, play play all of the rudiments and things like that before you could even sit behind a kit?
1: No, no. I started, I mean, I started playing when I was three and uh, started on a little round piece of wood that my uncle got me and a pair of sticks and was listening to records from it. um So my first kit well, was like, it was put together in pieces. One for a birthday, I'd get a little snare drum and, for Christmas, I'd get a bass drum. You know, and a few, you know, a few holidays down the line, I had like a a kick, hi hat, and snare, and that's how I started. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and um, and the rudiments. I loved uh, playing the drum corps. I, I, you know, my best friends were in core, They were great players. We were real serious about the rudimental thing. Um, so, you know, I was, you know, I, I love the rudimental stuff. I loved the set of drums and you know what, I, I had been taking lessons from when I was about seven until, you know, and, and then when I was, uh, about 12 or 13, when I was going to, you know, join a corps, um, you know, they were going to change the way that I held stick in my left hand and you know it was uh my parents were a little bit concerned and and uh they t- talked to my teacher john beck and he always you know he knew i wanted to do the drum part thing
0: so, and
1: he, he said as long as i keep doing he's he said as long as i keep playing other kinds of music that the rudimental thing would be okay and so it it uh I I never just did that, Mm -hmm. you know, I was always doing that and other things, so I didn't just get, I didn't get locked into the rudimental thing, but I was able to take what I learned there and apply it to the kit, you know, and other, and other kinds of music, which, which was nice, I liked it.
0: I think that, that sometimes there's this disconnect, and tell me if you would agree or disagree that when people, you know, start to learn the, the fundamentals and learn the rudiments they're not they don't start to apply them in a, in a musical setting and without getting without getting too technical uh, how did you was it a natural transition of taking these things that you were learning technically and turning them into musical applications because you were always playing music and playing technical things at the same time
1: you know I I wish, I, I love like I said I love rudimental stuck to the point where you know I was hanging out with these guys and we were practicing all day walking around with sticks in our back pockets and, and so I was doing the rudimental thing but then we'd go listen to some uh, to some organ groups at you know like at night and I'd go sit in and, and try to play like a backbeat so um, you know the fact that that I was doing different things at the same time. Um, And I was inspired by, you know, like funk music, which, you know, it's, you know, a a funk feel, it has like sort of a similar feel to like a drum corps
2: street Mm -hmm. beat
1: where they try to, you know, they try to write a cadence that makes everyone want to march alongside the drum corps So, there was a, you know, so to try and take those kind of grooves and apply them to the kit, and then, but not make it sound like the drum chord, make it sound like the guy that I heard playing in the organ band the night before. Right. You know what I mean? So I was I was inspired by different grooves and trying to apply different things to, to, to different areas. Like when I was writing drum parts, I was writing, you know, different kinds of... Uh, Different kinds of rudimental combinations because I was maybe thinking of uh, uh, of a jazz kind of feel, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, or, or or those kind of rhythms. So it it, it applies. One thing influences the right. other. And and uh, and if you're playing and, and if you're inspired by different kinds of music, then you don't you know like then you don't. Necessarily, just get locked in. If the guys that only do drum corps mm-hmm. and that they decide they're going to on the weekend play a kit, it just it doesn't. You can't just play that rudimental stuff on a kit and make it not sound like drum corps. You know what I mean? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta spend time doing it.
0: There's, there's one thing that that I've really noticed is that you seem to be able to take an idea and get a lot of mileage out of that one idea, whether it be, you know, whether it be a rudiment or whether it be a, a specific figure or whether it be a certain groove. Was that something that you always worked on sort of being able to play something sort of one way and upside down and inside out and backwards and in every sort of style and feel?
1: Well, I mean, I, yeah, you start out with that kind of,
0: uh, uh, i i that was my
1: practice mentality when i was when I was uh playing behind the kick you know what I mean it was uh I um, starting things slow well first of all, it was started out by just copying someone else that I heard mm-hmm. that I loved you know either someone that I saw or someone that I heard on the right. record you know and if I had to slow the record down to try to figure out what they did, I would do that. Um. So, um, where were we going with this thing that was I good man
0: Well, I w- I was asking about how you how you get so much mileage out of one particular thing or two particular things. Oh yeah.
1: So you know, and you know, I, I but my practicing
0: evolved like anything else.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, first you start mm-hmm. out doing things slow and try, and so you learn how to get things up to speed in a way where you know, you can start using them musically you know, get them comfortable. Um, and then, the, you know, the longer you play, the more you try to do things a little bit differently. And, you know, at one point, I started thinking, man, you, you can use, take four beats and like, you know, like a um, right, left, and then no, right hand on the on the snare drum, left foot on the hi hat, and two right fo- two right feet in a row. So that's it. That's it that. It, that's it, that's it, that's it. And take, just take that, play that over and over again starting on one. And then play the same thing starting on two, starting on three, starting on four, starting on all the and starting on every di- as many different ways as you can think of starting. It's the same technical thing that you did, you know, you started playing on one, but when you try to play the same thing starting on other parts of the of the bar, it, it's a whole other kind of mm-hmm. independence. And I think it's an important one, too, so I I love the fact that I stumbled on that, but you know, the more you try, the more you practice, the more you stumble on things that, that, uh, that you go right. for, you know? It's not like you know ahead of time exactly what you're doing man.
0: you know you sort of stumble on sure and, you, and i've heard you talk about you know even as far as like you know not to go down the the 50 ro- or 50 ways to leave your lover road but because you i'm sure that you've talked about that at nauseam but i know that you were sort of just working on something in the studio when that came about not purposely trying to figure out this thing but just naturally just working through some things and that sort of came out of that correct
1: Right. That was sort of a thing I was working on. Combinations of the hi-hat, hitting it with the foot, hitting it with the left hand, you know, and, and those kind of combinations with the right hand on the snare drum and, and, uh, and you know, and with the foot and starting out that way, the different kinds of syncopations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one thing opens up a whole door of other kinds of ideas. And then you take that thing and try to do the take it if you if you conceived it in even sixteenth fields, then try to figure out how to do it in triple fields. Right. You know what I mean. So there's so many different ways you can take the same thing and and, and apply it. So you it's it, it's an easy way to to uh, to file. You know what in your head, what you're working on. You
0: know what I mean. So, were you your practice routines? Were you a one of Were you a diligent practicer? Meaning, well, I shouldn't say a diligent practicer, but were you a a regimented practicer when you went in? Did you say, okay, I'm going to work on these specific things these days, or, or was it was it more of an just a a uh, a natural thing of whatever sort of came out during the practice session is what came out. And the reason why I ask that is because I think everyone practices differently. So I would love to hear the way that you did it.
1: Well, I, I mean, till, when I up until I got into college, it was like I was listening to records, copying what I heard, doing drum corps, going out and hearing bands, doing a whole bunch of, of different things that I loved. And I had John Beck teaching me, so I was learning to read and learning the rudiments, you know. And uh, um, so... I was doing you know I was spending a lot of time uh playing drums but it was it wasn't it didn't feel like practice you know what I mean it just felt like uh, it was fun you know a lot of it was with these other guys and then they would like to go hear different bands so you know they and they enjoyed hearing me sit in with a different band so that would inspire me to try and learn new things on I'm kid when 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 the, when all of us were not hanging and playing together, mm-hmm. you know. But when I got to Eastman, I had to start playing, you know, like timpani and xylophone and and uh, other instruments that are very difficult for me. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, I, there's guys that grew up playing timpani and playing. Now it's like I grew up playing the snare drum, so that. You know their, their muscle memory around the instrument is incredible. Sure. You know, and for someone like me, it's like it was just I was it was like being in a in a in a dentist chair. You know, getting <laughs> drilled trying to practice sight reading, and, and you know, I mean, not I not I mean, I loved it musically, but you know, sight reading that stuff was, yeah. was hard. I, I had the you same know?
0: issue when I went to college, and,
1: uh, and and and. And you know, and I saw guys. And you know, for me, if, if I'm going to play something, I want to play. That's why I ended up picking, you know, probably playing a kit because that was one thing that I, 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 I could play. Mm-hmm. You know, I could play timpani, but I was, you know, I was, I was trying to play. You know what I mean? I, I wasn't. It wasn't in my heart and soul because I didn't grow up with those, mm-hmm. those instruments. Sure. You know what I mean? So some of those guys could know what the pitch was. Just the, the t- tightening the head, feeling the tension of the head. They knew they were in right. the ballpark. Yep. You know what I mean. They didn't even have to to listen. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it was. You know, those kind of. You know, I, I I went with where my heart and soul was after I uh, after I got out of college because I just it was, the other instruments were so hard to keep to a level where you could, you know, uh, be able to playing mm-hmm. you know it was
0: just I, I made a decision to just go where where the right. fun was you well know, it's sort of the you know the the adage that you're good at the things that you're enjoy and you're you enjoy the things that you're good at and you tend you know you tend to to gravitate that way and I remember specifically getting into college and getting marimba parts and xylophone parts and I was just like I don't I don't even I don't even know where to start with this uh I'd never played either of those instruments so i understand the frustration that that uh that you're talking about because it was definitely i know it was hard for me too i it was like pulling teeth
1: yeah so it required a lot of a lot of hours you know uh, of structured practice to be able to to play those instruments to get through you know the the the, to get through college because i wasn't a teaching i wasn't trying to be a teacher I was, I was a percussion major so i had to play those things and uh like a lot of structured practice
0: In on the drum side were you were you doing structured practice too or just more when you had to learn timpani and, and mallets and all that
1: well i was, it was structured practice for um yeah for for definitely for marimba and timpani and then there was uh you know, there were multiple drum pieces written, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So uh, it wasn't really for like a set of drums, but it was like there might be a bass drum and some multiple drums. Um, so there were those kind of pieces that needed to be worked out. You know, there were concerto pieces uh, that you had to perform if you got a performer mm-hmm. certificate. So And you had to do concerto programs, which was a piece on timpani, marimba, uh multiple percussion, and if you wanted to do something on a set of drums, you could so you had to there was a lot of you had to you had to be able to play those things you know what i mean sure sure, but i could you know what i I could play a kit in one way, so I knew that I could play the kit and i and i I knew that I couldn't play the other stuff the way I'd like to do it
0: you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: so um, that
0: helped me make the decision. Sure. <laughs> the, it's sort of, I, I say this all the time about myself. This is probably a, a poor analogy, but I'm um, a skier. I've been skiing since I was four. I can ski any, you know, any mountain. And people always ask me why I never tried snowboarding. And I said, well, I don't know if I can mentally deal with the fact that like I would get to the top of the, the mountain and not know if I'm going to make it down. When I could already just get, I could just get on skis and I know that I could do it. And it sort of reminded me of that when you're saying, well, I can sort of play this marimba and, and tippany stuff, but I can really play the drums. So why don't I just play, why don't I just go over there and play those? Right. Well, yeah, you
1: know what I mean? Right.
0: So was it always, when you were growing up, when you were, you know, when you started to really fall in love with the drums when you're saying that it was part of your heart and soul, was was it always okay this is what i'm gonna do for the rest of my life or was there sort of a defining moment where you said i'm really gonna i'm really gonna put my head down and and go towards this and not really concern myself with anything else
1: well i mean at one point when you know uh, when i was getting ready to get out of high school and trying to get into college you know i i because of where i was academically and everything else i started to realize that was really I I music was the only thing that I could really do. You know what I mean? I wasn't really nothing else really you know, got me flared right. up. I wasn't I wasn't you know, and uh so I always loved playing and I and I kept at it and you know if you start something when you're young you keep at it, you get you get better you good at it. And, uh, and so when I kept on getting good at that, and then I wasn't really getting good at anything else, it sort of that just seemed like the way to try to go. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen.
0: This session is brought to you by my good friends over at DW Drums. And if you haven't already, please check them out at dwdrums.com. Not only do they make great drums and not only do they support this podcast and have been for years, but they've also given me a 65 by 14 inch snare to give away and a LP cowbell to give away for the 200th session giveaway. So they're just They're great people, and they make their drums right there in Oxnard, California, right above L.A. So if you're ever in the area, go there. You can get a free tour, and you can learn more about their unique drum-making process. So check them out, dwdrums.com. Evans reminds you to let no circle box you in. Their Level 360 gives you the most consistent fit for your drums, So you can get great tonal range, effortless tuning, and the freedom to express yourself any way you want. You can learn more about the 360 and all the other Evans products at evansdrumheads.com. Hey, I don't know if you heard or not, but Sabian has announced more big and ugly cymbals. They have an 18-inch AA sick hi-hat. It's thin, it's super dry overall, and has 28 holes in it, so there's virtually no airlock in it. We're talking about an 18-inch hi-hat. They also have other 14 and 16 AA Apollo hats and another 14-inch XSR Monarch hats and a bunch of other ones, like uh, other Apollo ones and other XSRs that are reasonably priced, so you're not going to break the bank buying them, and you can learn all about the new Sabian Big and Uglies at sabian.com forward slash Big Ugly. Did I mention an 18 inch hi-hat? I gotta check them out. Alright, let's get back into it with the one and only Steve Gadd. Oh, yeah, so how what was like how I decided
1: to uh, to, um, you know, play do music when I decided, you know.
0: Right, 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 right.
1: I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's it's sort of decided for, for me. Mm And, uh, so that was the, you know, that was, I did that better than I did other things. And I just, you know, sort of followed, followed, uh, my, my, my heart. And I, you know, in school I met Tony Levin who ended up, um, we ended up doing a lot of work together Mm -hmm. while we were in Rochester and, um, and then when I went in the army, he went to New York. So three years after I got, you know, I, uh, three years after I went in the army, I got out and, you know, I went and ended up living with Tony and his wife and he introduced me to people that he had met right. during the three years that, that he was in New York when I was in, I was in, uh, right outside of Washington, D.C fort meade Maryland.
0: oh okay that's where you were you were
1: stationed so, right um and uh so i i was stationed at fort meade yeah okay so i could get to new york on weekends and stuff and sure. uh stayed in touch with tony and um you know the rest that's it that's how it started for me it was just like one you know tony introduced me to some people and
0: how you lived in new york for a while too right well, I mean, I'm after I, uh, when, when
1: I was, or I should with say Tony, the city,
0: not in, not in Rochester is what I meant.
1: Right. Well, I was, when I was living with Tony, that was in Yorktown Heights.
0: Okay. So,
1: and we would go back and forth we'd commute, but, uh, eventually I got a loft in, in Manhattan mm-hmm. and, uh, we, we were there for like 20 years. Right in a couple of different locations.
0: I was going to ask you about stuff and when that whole thing came came to be, sort of how it came to be, uh, only because I don't think that that it gets talked about as much as I think it should get talked about. Personally, <laughs> um, but I know that it was it was you know made up of all you guys who were playing studio sessions together and playing and doing touring work. But what was what was the sort of the precipice behind? starting that band or, or actually playing shows with that band?
1: Well, the band was first, it was Gordon Edwards band. It was called the encyclopedia of soul. And, um, and he would play, they would get some weekend gigs at, you know, dances or, or things, you know, events in Brooklyn. We started, you know, doing that, um, on different weekends, you know, Mm Mm-hmm. And um you know, and that went on for a little while, then nothing for a while. And then um there was a club in New York that had a band playing every night or five or six nights a week with some great recording guys like Richard T, uh, Cornell Dupree, mm-hmm. um Eric Eric Gale, Gordon Edwards, and Chris Parker who's a friend of mine was in the band. Now I knew all these guys from doing sessions. But not to, you know, I wasn't, wasn't playing in this band, but there were, we, there were a lot of dates going on at the time. So Chris was busy and I was busy. And, um, so I asked him if he want, if he would, you know, split it up, you know, like if, if, uh, what, let's, uh, let's play, share the nights, three nights a piece. I mean, if you. If he had other stuff to do, and and because I'd be great, I'd love to play with these guys also. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started, and it came about. It was two drummers, and um, and uh, that, that's how it all happened. And it was just a bunch of guys that were busy in the studios, getting together at a club and playing, you know, for fun, right? And, right. And uh, and and it just sort of evolved into this thing where we, we were playing songs and putting our, putting our own little spin on them. Mm -hmm. And, and then they started writing some songs. And so it was, it it was a fun band. We had a lot of fun.
0: I I love that band. That's uh, we,
1: I, we respect, I respected those guys. I mean, it was such an honor to be able to play with those guys. Um, and, uh, you know, because when you get in you know, when you finally come to New York and you start, there's a whole other industry and a bunch of people that, you know, a lot of other people outside New York might not know about, but you hear about these guys like Dupree and Eric Gale and and, and Gordon Edwards and start hearing about some of the albums that they've done and, you know, and that, and how, how great their groove is. Man, it was, it was exciting. Good times.
0: Mm-hmm. And did to you? Did that feel more like a band to you? Did it have more of that band dynamic versus being a side man?
1: Yeah, we were all pretty much we were all yeah equal members. You know, everyone right. could write, and um, I mean, Gordon was. You know, it was he. He was the one who originally sort of put a band together that eventually did, was ended up in macell's so he was he was the leader in that sense right but other than that it was um evenly shared
2: mhm
0: and and the reason why i asked that is because for me i know that when i if i'm doing a sideman thing i feel less connected than if i I'm in a band and, and it feels, you know, more of a family and a more cohesive unit to where we're working towards something together versus just being hired for, for a particular thing. And so I was, you know, curious if that may maybe played into why you enjoy playing in that band so much aside from the amazing music that it, uh, that it, that you guys produce, but you're no stranger to producing amazing music with amazing musicians. So uh, yeah, just sort of curious if that was, You know, if that had anything to do with it, if if it felt more of that band dynamic versus a hired gun thing.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it does. the uh, The music and uh, the music was was great, and the band dynamic, the band created a you know a way of you know of playing that sort of you know dictated you know when it was time to get busy and when it was time to just lay the shit down. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, and when and, and when they were laying it down, man, it, would, it got intense.
2: you know, it I, it, I, I it,
1: know. It, ship, it got on, it was on fire. Yeah, and it felt and it felt spiritual, and it felt the thing that was magic about it was that that what we felt on the bandstand and the joy and happiness that we we felt playing that, getting it, you know, getting it on to that level was. What we were feeling, we felt was being shared exactly. You know, I think we felt like the audience was feeling exactly what we were, I and mean, it was like uh, it was joyous sometimes. You know, right? Um, you know, not every night was magic like that, but when it was magic, the bar was real high. You know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and even when it, even when it didn't get to that level, the nights, you know, when it was, it, it was always it was on fire
0: man
1: yeah. it was on fire so um i loved that band
0: i was going to ask I was that it. maybe one of the one of the, your favorite bands you ever played in yeah yeah
1: i mean yeah it was just it was something that it was something we all did because we 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 loved each other we respected each other and we loved playing music together and it was only at the beginning it was only to just play Mm-hmm. you know, for some, you know, for like a uh, hundred bucks a night in a club, you know? Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and it eventually evolved into where Joe Cocker came in the club and loved the band and wanted to record with the band. Then the, the band got signed by Warner Brothers and, they, you know, it was, uh, but you know what? It was the most fun when we first started out, we were just doing it. Because we wanted to go up, and play some some grooves together. You know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was great. It was a lot of fun like
0: that. Once it turns into the business, it gets a, sometimes it can take some of that um, fun and it enjoyment. Can take, out of it. Yeah, the,
1: the, yeah, the business can make make things a little bit bitter, right? Sour.
0: Sure. So, speaking of the business, I, w- I want to switch gears a little bit and talk talk about actually being in the studio recording. Uh, because you know how many records have you been on thousands and thousands of records and and I would imagine that you there's an approach that you have there is a, a way that you go into a recording session or even even playing live how you're approaching tunes how you're making sure that you're playing what's correct for the tune how you're serving the music instead of serving your ego and I remember you I remember seeing a clinic of yours and you said something along and I'm paraphrasing and, and and I'm not saying it exactly correct but you said something about you noticed that you didn't have the chops that everybody else had and then you but then you started playing in the pocket and you started getting all the gigs or something like that um and so it has that was that your approach because I know that that you're a fan of Rick Marotta stuff and and sort of the less is more stuff so what's your when you're going into the studio or playing live what is your approach? to make sure that you're serving the song properly? Sorry, that was a very long-winded answer or question.
1: Well, I mean, my approach is to uh, keep the music, you know, the priority. Um, and it's uh, for me, it's important to not talk about anything until I've heard either the artist play the song, sing it while he plays guitar or piano or plays a demo of it. That's real important for me to be able to hear the thing before anyone says anything. And if there's a lead sheet or any kind of music, look at the music while you listen to the, the thing, you know? Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: you get some kind of idea of the form of the song and how, how what you heard applies to where you are on the page you know, if it's a close, if it's closer, if it's a completely different, you know, different arrangement.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but you can't, you have to not talk about it until you've heard it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I think it's even good after you've heard it to maybe play it a little bit before you talk about it. Because then you, then you, you've, you've you've had a chance to allow the music to bring something out of you that nobody said anything about. And it could be, it could be what they're looking for that they, but something that they couldn't put into words. So do you know what I
2: mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Try to keep, try to keep the communication line open and uncluttered. Right. And, uh, and so then after you've played it and then maybe you could, the guy could say, well, you know what? This letter one section was really good, but uh, the other section it was a little bit too busy, a little too loud, but at least, you know, what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Right. You've got like, uh, you've got it. And, and you could even play it a couple of times before you start talking about it to see what, to see what, it, how, what the music brings out of the people naturally you mm-hmm. know what i mean to see if it just sort of and you know what if the if the guy's a good producer and and the artist isn't real experienced, they might allow it to go that way
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, even though it's different from what they had envisioned you know what i mean right but other times they might not the other times they might say oh no you know what before you know before we start doing that i want to i don't want to do you know so it's yeah it's a process you know and it's a it's constantly coming up with different agreements along the way right. based on what everyone you know uh, based on how to make the music what the what the artist and the producer want you know
0: right so what i'm hearing from you is that there from your side there's no agenda and there is you know just the opening up and sort of surrendering to the music and just saying hey whatever you know, whatever comes out of this is what's going to come out naturally. And if you want it to be different, then we can make changes as we go. But if not, it's going to be a, a natural approach to what's going on.
1: Right. And, and 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 unless it's some kind of, um, unless it's some kind of uh, fusion time signature thing that requires, you know, like you need to like, you know, uh, that you're going to overdub. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you'd, you'd check that out ahead of time because years ago you'd go in the studio with a live rhythm section and, and rehearse for hours. So you get those things together. Now, um, a, a lot of the time it's an overdub, mm-hmm. but most, most of the things aren't like that. You know what I mean? Most of the things aren't, the, aren't that, uh, you know, that fusion kind of thing, you know, so right.
0: I just try to be open. I just try to stay open. Do you think that's something that can be taught or do you think that that is a natural thing that you have that is, is just natural, natural talent?
1: No, I think you can, I think you can taught it. I mean, I, I think it can be taught, but I, I sort of, you know, I, I learned it along the way um, just through, you know, doing dates, you know, sometimes you get a call from somebody that you've heard of that you're a fan of, and uh, so you're excited about doing it, and you have some preconceived idea, subconsciously even.
0: That's sort of like this, that's sort of how this interview is tonight. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, so you had some kind of, and uh, Um. I forgot where, where I was going with this thing. What yeah. what were we to just talking about?
0: Well, we were saying ab- about can it be taught or is it natural talent of being open? And oh yeah,
1: so yeah, so yeah. I mean, I'm you know, I'll I'll say it, and hopefully someone will get it. But I, you know, like the more preconceived things you come up with before you go in the room, the more the more things you have got to overcome and clear out before you can get to. Um, listening to the song without any preconceived ideas, because that's the only way that the music's going to really dictate what's going on. Do you know what I mean?
0: Right.
2: Sure.
1: Otherwise you're going in there with a preconceived idea and trying to make it something that you thought you thought they wanted based on something you heard before you got there. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's all in your own head. Yep. Yep. You know, so now, now, now the the rest of the band's gotta tell you to step away from the edge of the roof. <laughs> <laughs> Don't jump.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> now you got to start all over again.
1: <laughs> so it's better if you go in open and, and then you just start from scratch.
0: That makes a lot more sense. It's you know it's like filling up a room before you and then having to empty it back out. Uh, that makes that makes total sense. And there's, I used to play with a guitar player who anytime he listened to Jeff Beck, he would come into that gig and he would sound like Jeff Beck that night,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. you know, sort of, and met, I don't know if, if it was a subconscious thing or if it was a conscious thing, but, but, uh, but getting to that, getting to that openness, I think is really, really hard for 99.9 of us who, who don't feel like they're there. Uh, and you know, for me, I know me personally, that's why I've admired your playing so much is that no matter what is going on, you're, you're serving the music perfectly always. I mean, Chick Corea said that, you know, there's a quote that he said that every drummer, every drummer wants to play like you because you're perfect. And you've brought orchestral or orchestral and compositional thinking to the drum kit while at the same time having a great imagination and the great ability to swing I mean if that's not if that's not the ultimate compliment then then I don't know what is if you know talking about that's a drum. great
1: comp that is now that's a great compliment man you know what I did I, I loved orchestra stuff and and, and I love you know I loved all kinds of music and there were a few times like where you get the opportunity to Combine a lot of different things musically, and the, the Chick Corea albums like *A Leprechaun*,
2: mm-hmm.
1: especially, you know, like we did that live in the studio, so it was all, you know, it was we had to read. It was you had to just apply any any kind of knowledge you had you could apply to that that session musically.
2: Right. That's how.
1: That's how. That's the level that the music was.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and you know whatever he wrote, you know as difficult as it was always made sense. It always made musical sense. You know what I mean? It wasn't just difficult to be difficult. It was it was challenging rhythmically, but it was it was great music.
0: And that's I, I, I would imagine, you know, that's for you that's the best situation to be in, that it's challenging. It's it's you know, it's uh it's it's musical. It has all these all these moving parts to it, but at the same time, like you said, makes sense and, and turns yeah, into, you, this, know you know what,
1: you know what the of? best situation I'm, it's, this is right, this right now is the best situation. I'm in. Great. <laughs> right, whatever, whatever I'm doing right now is I try to make the best situation. Right. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm happy for all of those other times and other, you know, other things that I've done and, 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 uh, but I, I try not to wish that I, I, I should be doing something other than what I'm doing. Right. Um, and I think that that's, that's a good one musically, man, to think just because you're, i wonder, you know, did you ever play a gig when you were younger and it was real simple and a lot of brush stuff, a lot of ballad and thinking, God, I wonder if I'm losing my chops playing this gig, man. Do You know what I mean right and and, and then and then I'm want, wanted wanting to start putting some shit in that made no sense musically, just just chop <laughs> things. you know I mean, so it's a you know it's a battle you know you you're you're constantly going through that those mind games, you know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Do you personally struggle with that kind of stuff too, even now, like where if you're really deep in the pocket or something, like do you still have the urge to to like break out and play all this choppy shit all over what's going on? I mean, I I,
1: I don't I the, what what I play is dictated by you know the what how how what the groove is and and, uh, and how good it's feeling, um, and um, or you know on arrangements that got preset drum solos that so I know what, what I got to do,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, so I, you know I, I and I'm. It's like I, if I'm playing with James Taylor and we're doing th- that gig, I find ways where that gig challenges me enough to play with that much space and that much uh, and that quiet um, and to make it feel, make the foundation feel strong and solid. That's another kind of challenge. Right. And uh, it's got nothing to do with top. So, you know, I'm in situations now where you know, when I was younger, I might have thought, "Man, I wish I was playing." You know, what's your, what is this? I'm, I'm going to sleep here. But you know, I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't do that anymore. You know, I, I, uh, I matured,
0: Nick. All right. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, I'm still I'm trying matured. to. I'm still trying to mature. You're right. Yeah. Well, uh, me too.
1: I didn't mature that much, but uh, <laughs> a little bit.
0: Well, it's just interesting, you know, to to know that you that every you know that everybody I talk to still struggles with that a little bit but but has really honed in and just said well you know I'm I'm here to serve it and like you said matured and 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 gotten that out of your system because that's a total ego thing and we all have it but I think some more than others uh but
1: well so but see so some people are inspired by different things like I think some guys are inspired first just by the instrument And, you know, and and they're talented and they get into it. And hopefully something will happen that'll trigger them to be just as inspired musically. Where they'll take some of that stuff and and start to realize that it all doesn't apply to everything. So you've got to, you know, apply different parts of your repertoire to different kinds of music. Right. You know, hopefully that'll happen. And if it does, he'll enjoy a lot. A lot more music than just playing one style, mm-hmm. but it, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's the luck of the draw. It's like what you you know. It's like what you love, what what you're challenged by, um, you know, just it's it's a whole bunch of different things,
2: sure that
1: that, that keep people inspired.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, you would mention being being you know playing with James Taylor, being challenged with with that band and with with playing all of that space and, and different things and i know that you now you have a a dvd and a cd with the rhythm section of that band right mm-hmm. right so let's talk I, i'd look, talk a little bit about the the album and the dvd because i'd like to hear more about that and because i'm guessing or i, I want to know did that stem from the james taylor thing or did the james taylor thing stem from that so let's walk down that road a little well,
1: bit did you hear the albums?
0: I, did, I have not heard the albums no. Ah.
1: See, that's a problem, Nick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I John I prob- John no, I've
1: got a little bit of a I've got a problem with that John.
0: What happened? I I you know, I think you need to seek new representation. <laughs> the, the CDs are in the mail. They're in the mail. Oh, with the check, right? Right.
1: <laughs> well, anyway, you know, it was actually the the band uh, on the on the recordings are Jimmy Johnson on bass, Mike Landau, um, <clears throat> Larry Goldings, Walt Fowler, and myself. And uh, and that's the the a lot of the band that when James goes on the road, that's mm-hmm. the, the rhythm section plus Walt's one of the horn players. Um, and you know my wife, along with Walt Fowler's wife Michelle. Um, who was working for a record company at the time thought it would be a good idea to why not do our own project with guys that we want we play a lot with so we're comfortably musically we like to all hang uh, because of spending so much time on the James tours our families come out and hang get to know each other so it just seemed like a no brain sure and uh, so we've done we've done three CDs uh, one the first one's called uh Attitude The second one's called Seventy Strong And the third one is uh, Called Way Back Home Which comes with a With a DVD And it's um, It's a live uh, recording and, and video of Me, this band Playing at the Rochester Jazz Festival And, and so that's Really the first time that I've gone Back home Uh, and played music in a long time. So it was, uh, it was a special night for me. Hmm. Um, And uh, so, and the band plays, uh, everybody writes, you know, brings in original things. We do, we put our heads together and decide if we want to do any, any kind of covers and we'll all, Put our heads together at least we've done that the last two albums in the studio we've come up with a song on each album that's a a group composition that we just did while we were in in the recording studio so um so there's a little bit of uh, a lot of different kinds of music
0: that's not out yet though that comes out when the 16th um i
1: think it comes out the 16th of september that's what they're they're shooting for okay so
0: and that is there there's going to be a tour associated with that as well.
1: Yeah, we're going to go to uh Europe for th- 3 weeks and uh we leave on the uh, 17th of September and then come back and um and then go to Japan in the middle of November uh and through the beginning of December. And then we're going to then we play uh, We're doing something in in California at Catalina's in
0: January. During Nam week. Okay. That's it. So I'm definitely gonna be out there. So are you going to just this is more of a, a personal selfish question? Are you gonna be in Italy uh during the European tour at all?
1: You know what? I I, I I'm sure they've sent the itinerary, but I haven't really looked at it.
0: Okay. I'll have to and look I, it up. I, 'cause I don't, I'll be, I don't know. I'll be I'll be uh in Europe around the same time, so but if not, I'm definitely coming to Catalinas to check it out. So. All right, well, good. man. I look forward to seeing. Well, if the CD's any good, I don't know. I have. I John hasn't sent me a. a
1: well, CD check it out. You know what? <laughs> at, at least, at least call, call John and let him know you're not going to come. So we're not sitting up waiting. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because we will be. Right. <laughs> yeah, we will be. And Steve worries. He worries a lot. Yes, right. he does. He'll be yeah. he'll, he'll be upset. He'll be he'll be pacing back and forth. I can
2: picture him. <laughs> yeah,
0: <Right>. I'm sure. <laughs> so uh, I have just a few more brief questions, and then I want to be cognizant of your time. And we've been we've been on for a little while here. Uh, so I put a thumbtack in in when we were talking about serving the music and 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 maturity and things like that. And one of the things that, that I've always wanted to ask you particularly is the amount of not only restraint that you have when you're playing but the ability to to build on very, very small ideas and essentially not move from that idea whenever, when it almost feels like you should and you start to build this, this tension in this idea – And then when you feel like the release should come, you keep building the tension. And then there's release, you know, later, later on, like if uh, a solo that comes to mind is the Zildjian days solo from, I forget what year it was. I think it was in the eighties, but that starts so small and, and expands into this huge thing. So is there a way that you've, develop that that sort of restraint and that that building rather than just going from sort of one to 11 in you know two seconds
1: well I, I you know I was playing for hours you know back then I was I was just spending a lot of time with 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 the drums man you know either either recording or between takes practicing you know different things to try and not go crazy um, you know rehearsals so you you just you get like this uh, you get like a, a you know where the drums just start to feel like a like a party
2: mm-hmm. you know
1: what I mean and and when it's happening you don't really you don't really realize it you know you're just you know going with the flow you're you're playing a lot you're working you're having fun playing different kinds of things but it's like when if you stop for any length of time. And realize when you try to go back, and uh, you know, if, if you don't play for a while and try to go back, you start to see, you know, like uh, you start to realize how the rapport you had with the instrument when you're spending hours and hours with it. You know what I mean? It's impossible to do that all the time. You can't, you can't do that. You know, right. I mean, it's like, but I mean, that, that's what it takes to To have that kind of uh, facility mm-hmm. so the rest of the time you know the rest of the time if you don't get a chance to play that much and play that, all those different kinds of music you just you do the best you can you know what I mean you right. play you go for it you know and mm-hmm. some nights are better than others Um, but that's you know that's the way it is you know what I mean and it's got nothing to do with anything other than that was then this is now you know Right. Uh, those were other times, and this is some. This is this is a different situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, what happens is the the more hours that you start putting back in, whether it's, if it's because you're back on the road again and tour and you're playing every day, it just comes back. Sure. You know what I mean? hmm It starts. To, it starts to come back, but we, we can drive ourselves months going through those uh, transitions
0: you're playing, it always feels like, especially when, when you're, when you're playing, you know, a quarter note or, or something, like when you're playing as minimal as possible, it never to me seems like you're in a rush to get anywhere else. And you're just, you sort of just let it naturally build on its own. and and
1: yeah, that's, but that's the challenge, man. That. I-
0: not to rush
1: and not, and not to get ahead of it at those, at those slope tempos in particular, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, but when you can lock them in and everyone's listening and it's, it, uh, it's great, man. I mean, like if you just lock, you hit the downbeat with the bass and the bass drum, if you can, it, if you really lock it in. It can really, you know, without playing it too hard, it can be very powerful.
0: Yeah, I've always been blown away by that, and and you, I think, above all, are are someone who has mastered that of of playing, you know, three notes and making it sound huge, and making it and and making it uh, sort of drive drive the tune or or make a, a grandiose statement by just hitting a floor, Tom, or something like that. And it, and it stems from how you're building it up before that. And, you know, it's just, it's amazing. So I wanted to ask you about that, about what, what you thought about that and, and the challenges that you had from it, or if that's something that you purposely have worked on, or if it's just naturally how you're playing.
1: Well, I mean, I, I mean, I work on it, you know, uh, and I, you know, the other thing that's happened is where you get there to, you know, you get there too quick. Yeah. You know, I've had, I've had that happen where we're playing like these ridiculous tempos and I, I built it up to a frenzy behind Michael Brecker and he still had like 20 more choruses to play. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you're like, now what? Now where am I going yeah, to Yeah,
1: I mean, it was like, where do I go from here, man? I was hitting everything in sight.
0: So what do you do so, when you run out of headroom? <laughs>
1: No, I mean you just realize not try not to do it again. I mean, you know, <laughs> you learn from your mistakes,
0: right? Right. You know. Yeah, I think I've. Uh... So, it's not like you know.
1: You know, I didn't. I, you know, when I started out, man, I really didn't know anything. Anything I learned was like along the way. You know what I mean? Right. I, I, in terms of recording and grooves and. Drum sounds. I mean, that was all when I got to New York.
0: Right. So I have one last question for you and and I'll let you go. And I know so you've been, you know, you've been a sideman for, for most of your life and you have some other of your own personal projects going on, but by and large you've been a sideman. So what advice do you have for others who want to try to maintain a, a side man career for as long as you have and uh and do it successfully?
1: Well just you know, love what you do you know do it give it 150% um you know you know, uh, uh, you know show up on time you know please and thank you be polite you know, and try to under, try to understand what what people verbally are trying to communicate to you about what they want for the music cuz it's an awkward situation to try to put that stuff into words Mm -hmm. And it can, you know, it can get misunderstood, and it can create your defenses to go up, and and you have to constantly, you know, work on all of those things. You know what I mean? And and uh, um, just keep on working hard at it. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you're lucky, uh, it'll happen. But the bottom line is. It's not about, you know, waiting to be happy until you get there. It's about trying to be happy on the journey so you're enjoying the ride.
0: Yeah, you can't keep postponing happiness until. That's no way to live for life in general, you know, aside from just drumming. So I agree with that. Right. I totally agree. Well, Steve, I appreciate you taking all the time to, uh, to chat with me. And again, publicly just want to tell you that you have been a huge inspiration to me my entire life. My, you have hands down have been, uh, my go-to guy, my, my favorite drummer of all time. So it's been amazing to have you on the podcast and anytime you'd like to come back, you you're more than welcome. And, uh, and hopefully I'll get to see you in LA Catalina's.
1: Okay. I look forward to it, man. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Steve, thank you so much. John, thank you for for connecting us as well. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Nick. And, uh, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Okay, Nick. All right. I'll talk to uh, you later. Thanks, guys. Have a good holiday weekend. Okay. Take you care. You too. Yep. There you have it. The one, the only Steve Gad. I hope that you enjoyed that. And for the links to everything that we talk about, you can visit drummersresource.com forward slash session two zero three. Also, if you haven't already, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes. I would appreciate it if you're getting value from this podcast. And what that does is it gets it higher up in the ratings and more people find out about it and things like that. And it'll take you, you know, a minute to do. So I would really appreciate that. Again, I hope you enjoyed this interview. This was so much fun to put this out, and I appreciate you listening. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so very much for listening and being a part of this and making this something that Steve would even want to come on to be a part of. So I couldn't do it without you. So thanks so much. I appreciate it, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.